The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. Welcome to the Ray Hanania Radio Show, Season 3, Episode 21, September 20th, 2023. We're broadcast on the U.S. Arab Radio Network on WNZK AM 690 Radio in Detroit and on WDMV AM 700 Radio in Washington, D.C., sponsored by Arab News, the voice of a changing region at ArabNews.com. This week, the United Nations General Assembly began its 78th session addressing many global issues from climate change to political upheaval, but with some voices saying that the United Nations, created in 1945, may no longer be in sync with today's world. Several major heads of state from the founding nations did not address the UN. The goals of the General Assembly's 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, have not kept pace with expectations. Now halfway through the 10-year plan, only achieving 15% of their goals. And should there be reforms to give the General Assembly a greater voice in UN actions and deliberations, including by reforming the UN Security Council, which often is unable to make decisions because of the veto powers of the five founding member nations, the United States, China, Russia, France, and the United Kingdom. The UN began with 51 nations in 1945 and today now has 193. How do you make competing nation organizations such as the G20 and the new BRICS alliance, among many others, further undermine the UN's mandate? We're going to be speaking with two guests. We begin with Ephraim Kosafi, the UN Bureau Chief and Correspondent for Arab News Newspaper. He's going to give us an overview of what UNGA 78 session will be seeking to achieve. And then we'll be speaking with Amal Mudalali, who is the former Lebanon ambassador to the United Nations and is currently an international affairs analyst who will discuss the successes and the challenges that face the United Nations. Can the UN be more equitable and fair? And can the veto uh, actions of the UN Security Council be brought under control? But first, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Get ready for an amazing experience at Ishtar Restaurant on 15 Mile Road in Sterling Heights. Enjoy excellent hospitality from owners Ali Abagdadi and Fatty Bottom serving the best in Mediterranean food. Try Chef Ali Abagdadi's famous shawarma, the best Iraqi grills and food, and the best Arabic and international dishes. Dine in our authentic atmosphere or take out. Call 586-698-2585 or check us out on Facebook. Ishtar Restaurant practices all CD 
CDC guidelines and is open every day, 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Have an amazing experience today at Ishtar Restaurant, 3625 15-Mile Road, Sterling Heights. With more than 30,000 successful in vitro fertilizations, IVF Michigan is now ranked as one of America's best fertility clinics according to Newsweek magazine. IVF Michigan fertility centers are the recognized leaders in high quality fertility care. With locations in Bloomfield Hills and nine other cities in Michigan and Ohio, IVF has experts in all aspects of the field. A founding member, American Board Certified Dr. Nicholas Shama, is one of the leading reproductive endocrinologists in Michigan and Ohio. He has performed over 20,000 successful IVF cases and it's helped thousands of couples fulfill their dreams of parenthood. When it's time to get personalized care from Dr. Nicholas Shama at one of America's best fertility clinics, call IVF Michigan Fertility Centers in Michigan and Ohio toll-free at 855-952-9600. 855-952-9600. And welcome back to the Ray Hanania Radio Show here at WNZK AM 690 Radio in Detroit and WDMV 700 a.m. radio in Washington, D.C. I'm really proud to uh, be talking to this person because I've known him for so many years. He's a colleague of mine at Arab News, Ephraim Kosafi, the United Nations beat correspondent for the Arab News at the U.N. And uh, we get a lot of great stories there. Ephraim, I was there one time and it was just too much. It's like a mile wide and a mile long. It's like and I don't know how one person covers it. Welcome to the show, Ephraim. Thank you, Ray. It's great to be with you. What do you foresee coming up this week? It's really a marathon of speeches. You have, first of all, Ray, they call it the Oscars of diplomacy. That's where everybody converge on New York City, each country bringing its own priorities, its own foreign policy postures, its own uh, files to discuss. You have over this year, you have over 143 heads of states coming. You have also four deputy uh, head of state and you have 50 uh, foreign ministers and other ministers or uh, delegation chiefs. Let's talk about the SDGs. And that means sustainable development goals. I think you explained to me, right? Uh, There are 17 of them. Every year they have progress reports on each and every one of them to see how each country, uh, how much on track each country is. That the SDGs are actually the first comprehensive, all-encompassing agreement ever negotiated between developed countries and what we call now the Global South. Um, their main goal is to uh, is basically um, uh, prosperity uh, for all. Uh, no one should be left behind. That's the main motto of the SDGs. And uh, 17 goals, they include, uh, you know, education for all, healthcare for all, clean uh, energy, for all. Uh, They include uh, good governance also, uh, gender equality. And uh, and these things are very interconnected. And as the head of energy uh, for all at the UN uh, told me, like, you cannot have any of the other SDGs progress if you don't have energy. Education is also interconnected to them all. How can you have progress if you don't uh, ensure that you have the population educated and you have access to schools for everybody? Uh, Women as well. Women are 50% of societies. How can you build an equal society if half of the population cannot participate in it and cannot be at the decision table? Look at Afghanistan. This is like 
what's happening now in Afghanistan. Women are not allowed to continue education after a certain age. They're not allowed to go out without a guardian. And we see the situation, we follow it there. So these are the SDGs. And of course, this year, they come at a time where they are specifically uh, off track, like particularly off track. Uh, what does that mean? It means, for example, when it comes to women, you need over 200 years at the current rate to achieve equality, for example, gender equality. Education as well, you still have millions who are still without education. So, so you're only- saying you're saying that the SDGs represent a movement forward on issues. There's and- a goal so- that by 2030, it's called the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda. And it was negotiated in 2015, and now we are midway through the journey, and there's still 85% off track. Only 15% so, of them are on track. Are there any that uh, of these SDGs that appear to be advancing faster than others? We have heard of some successive of particular countries, for example, like Bahrain. We had a high-level political forum on the SDGs in June. Bahrain, for example, did a very good job handling the pandemic, for example. Um, this also falls into equality for all because everybody in Bahrain got vaccinated, the poor, the rich, everyone, the foreigners, the locals. You also have uh, the Saudi uh, ministers of finance as well, Faisal al-Ibrahim, who was also here for the high-level political forum, and he talked about the kingdom's progress uh, on the SDGs. It was also a very powerful speech. He highlighted basically three critical lessons that came out of Saudi Arabia that could, you know, be uh, used as a lesson uh, by the rest of the world and that could pave the way for more solid achievements in the SDGs in various fields. For example, he underscored the interconnectedness of global challenges, um, you know, uh, insisting that uh, the impact of these global challenges transcends Uh, borders from disease to wildfire, agricultural disruptions to financial uh, disruptions. And, um, 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 you know, seeing that the world has been getting uh, uh, more uh, integrated, as he said, more collaboration uh, is needed. And he said one thing they learned in Saudi Arabia is that we will never solve the most complex global issues without collaboration. Uh, then you have also another lesson, which is the importance of innovation and experimentation. And that was also the case with Bahrain. There was a lot of innovation uh, when the pandemic hit. Um, for Faisal Ibrahim, it's innovation that drives economic uh, change. And this bold approach is needed if we want to get back on track for the SDGs. And then, uh, which is probably the main uh, one, is the importance of prioritizing human capital uh, development uh, with the knowledge and creativity of individuals being the bedrock of societal progress. And I'm I'm quoting him uh, here. Um, and uh, this global interdependencies also, Ray, was uh, showcased by the kingdom uh, with the Green Initiative, which also falls under the clean energy and climate uh, uh, for all, climate security for all as well. And, it's part of the SDGs. And climate and, uh, is one of the big ones, isn't it? Definitely. The Secretary General has been carrying this message all around. And we saw before Anga that uh, there were many, many summits. This is the first year that the Secretary General of the UN is not with us before Anga to give us interviews, to give us the briefings that he does, because he was busy with all these summits from the G20, G77, BRICS summit in South Africa, um, uh, the uh, UN uh, ASEAN summit. 
and uh, and the climate summit uh, in Nairobi in Africa. And speaking of climate, uh, Ray, um, we saw last um, last month that the World Meteorological Organization uh, declared August as the hottest August on record uh, by a large margin and the second hottest ever month after July, actually. Um, and when it comes to climate uh, action, and you asked me about the discrepancies between nations, um, developed countries have a particular responsibility when it comes to uh, fighting climate uh, change. And uh, the Secretary General has called them many times to lead on this and to deliver, because the fact is uh, African countries, for example, account for just 4% of global greenhouse gas emissions, but Africa is the epicenter of climate chaos, uh, wow. and it's suffering disproportionately uh, from the impacts of climate change. And the G20, for example, they are uh, they emit 80% of the greenhouse emissions. This is also part of reducing inequality, since we're talking about the interconnectedness of these issues. So uh, the Secretary General called on um, uh, the developed world to uh, deliver on its promises. As you know, Ray, last year for the first time and under the presidency of Pakistan of the G20, uh, G77, uh, they introduced the loss and damage fund, basically in which um, uh, the developed world has promised uh, countries like Pakistan, who a third of it was uh, flooded last year. Uh, now Libya, for example, and we see what's happening in Libya with the floods and Morocco. They promised these um, nations that are suffering from extreme weather events to give them, um, uh, you know, funds to uh, uh, deal with the catastrophe and also to uh, help them transition to renewable energy as well. But the fund hasn't been really dispersed the way it's supposed to. So the Secretary General will make it a point this year for the Western world to pay the 100 billion promised to developing to developing country, the loss and damage fund. Uh, he's asking him to uh, uh, double adaptation finance, replenish the green climate uh, fund. And this is a matter of justice and Africa, as the UN has maintained for the past year, must be considered when it comes to climate, a priority in all these crucial uh, uh, commitments. So these developed countries produce 80% of all of the pol pollutants, yet they seem to have the greatest impact on the countries that produce so little. Yes. Um, is that one of the areas that has not achieved or maintained pace with the goals set by the SDG? That is one of the major, major areas. And we can segue from this into the talk about uh, the, the need also of um, uh, restructuring, redesigning the global financial uh, infrastructure. And that's also been a leitmotiv of the Secretary General during his speeches to all the summits. What's yes. being done to bring everybody up to speed to make them reach that 50%? when they're yeah. only at 15% and, and they're so far behind. One of the things the Secretary General has been insisting on in all of his speeches during the summit where he was, and in fact, during the whole past year, really, the, is the fact that basically the majority of African countries pay more of their budget in interest for debt than uh, in education or in health. This is basically reality right. of the current uh, global financial architecture. And the Secretary General, of course, 
um, uh, has been calling for a redesigning uh, of that uh, architecture. Uh, you know, there is, um, he called for an effective debt workout mechanism, for example, to support payment suspension. He called for uh, longer lending terms, lower rates uh, on fairer uh, terms as well. He reiterated many, many times his appeal for change in the business model of multilateral development banks uh, to massively leverage private finance. To this day, the, the Africa uh, is still underrepresented in this global uh, financial uh, architecture, and uh, just as it still lacks a seat on the Security Council. So the world has changed. And um, uh, there are calls that global governance also uh, has to change uh, and to be made more fit for purpose for the and, newly uh, emerging world. And are the SDGs addressed by the entire General Assembly, though? Yes, uh, this okay. is uh, what the world leaders are coming to do. Right. This is the main goal of uh, world leaders uh, coming here. Uh, they're basically are uh, gathering to discuss their plans and priorities and uh, to uh, tell the world how their countries uh, intend to contribute uh, to the SDGs, to a better, to a more equal, to a more peaceful world. And also outline their commitments to accelerating the progress towards the SDGs uh, as as we said, we are crossing uh, the halfway point right now. Tell us and about as the general said Guterres. Like SDGs are not are not about checking boxes. You know, they're about the hopes, dreams, rights, and expectations of people and the health of the natural environment. They're about righting historical wrongs, healing global divisions, and putting the world on a path to peace. Tell us about what multipolar world and multilateral systems mean. Multipolar world, uh, look, for example, uh, at the different summits that we saw just the past month. We had the G77 summit, uh, which represents the global south and the developing nations. We had BRICS in South Africa, which there are now new members, Saudi Arabia, UAE, they just joined it. Uh, the G20 of the most developed nation. We had the ASEAN, Southeast Asia nation. We had the Africa Climate Summit. M multiplicity of these summits reflects the, the multipolarity uh, of our world. It basically means that power now is more diffuse and different countries, as we saw, exert uh, influence in different spheres. Um, and, and what's uh, the what is the goal? So the Secretary General says, for example, that the multipolar world reflects the vitality uh, uh, of the international community. But at the same time, it does not guarantee itself peace and stability. If there are no uh, multilateral institutions that are reformed and that are made fit for purpose to deal with our changing world, these different summits, these different multipolarity could actually lead to fragmentation. And as we know, fragmentation could lead to more confrontation. So uh, amid this multipolar system that is emerging in the world, there is a huge insistence at the UN uh, on saving the multilateral system. And a lot of people are saying that the multilateral system is really an ailing uh, patient, like it's almost dead. It's the failure to renew the Black Sea Grain Initiative at the Security Council. It's also the failure to renew the cross-border mechanism uh, to deliver aid in northwest Syria. But as the new uh, president of the General Assembly told me, uh, he will argue uh, with that. It's uh, 
okay, it's dysfunctional, but it's not completely dysfunctional. Uh, he uses as an example um, uh, the new, the recent ratification of the BB&J treaty about the law of disease beyond national jurisdiction. That was also a very multilateral effort that won. We are seeing progress in healing the ozone layer, for example, and that's a treaty. The Montreal Protocol uh, was also a multilateral uh, effort and now, you know, and it's paying off. So it's not really that uh, what the UN is saying is it needs to be saved and each country needs to do its job to make sure that multilateral institutions are working and in order for this multipolarity to function and to really be a matter of vitality, not a matter of uh, uh, more divisions and more confrontations. Well, as we talk, I, I get the sense that it's very difficult to achieve progress the way we should yes. be. On top of all that, you have all the conflicts around the world. We don't have to go through all of them, but I know that one of the big things that the General Assembly will be, not just the discussion about the SDGs, but you'll have each of the heads of state. Won't they be coming up and speaking and offering their perspectives? Um, and it seems like it's the same old, same old people all the time. President Biden will be there. The prime minister of Israel will be there. The Palestinian Authority will be there. Um, there'll be uh, several uh, leaders of other countries, France. Are, do we expect anything to stand out? None of the P5 leaders, except for President Biden, are coming. Why and this is has created a lot of uh, a lot of question marks. And a lot of diplomatic sources told us that uh, this just doesn't look good because this is uh, the platform where developing countries are coming in order to share with the leaders of the developed nations uh, how to uh, ensure progress on the SDGs and, and, and bring their own priorities and their own trouble, but except that the big leaders will not be here. Many others have uh, belittled the uh, that issue. For example, the U.S. representative Linda Thomas-Greenfield said it's not about the big leaders coming or not. This is about the other parts, of the, the other nations that I, are coming to bring their own priorities and we will listen to them. I, but I get what she says, but that it sounds more like an excuse. I mean, this is the United Nations. There, I don't know if there's a bigger agency I'm not saying it's the most effective agency, but it's there's no other agency organization that's bigger than the United yeah. Nations. And you would think there was a time when it was so important for the leaders of these countries. Are, are people saying that maybe the United Nations isn't being taken as seriously as it was years ago? And is there any discussion about, you know, uh, improving the U.N., reforming the U.N.? Uh, building the system at all? Uh, yeah, exactly what you're saying is what we are hearing behind the scenes every day, Ray, that this doesn't look good. This is disrespect uh, for the UN and what it represents. Um, having said that, talks of reform have also uh, picked up pace uh, during the past year, whether reforms of the General Assembly or of the Security Council. Um, again, the Security Council was created 100 years ago. Most of Africa was still living subjected to colonial rule. It reflects, as the Secretary General said, a bygone era. Right. And talks of how to reform it uh, have been really much more alive this year than they ever uh, were. And everybody's talking about reforms. Um, for example, some people talk about enlarging 
the Security Council to include more permanent members, um, although this also um, creates some doubts among many, like why have more permanent members with more vetoes? Right. We already have five who can threaten us it, with a veto. Why so it, and more? just for people to understand, it takes one nation on, on the Security Council to issue a veto and stop everything on yes. a topic. So you add 30 more nations, that seems likely it's going to create less progress at the Security Council. Have they exactly. thought about that? Has there been any discussion about empowering the General Assembly, which yes. issues resolutions that are often considered unenforceable? They're recommendations. These resolutions yeah. are moral uh, implications yeah. on the world. They're not like yeah. the Security Council. If they agree on something, it must be done. Has there the been discussion? The force of international law, the Security Council resolution. Right. Although it's not being uh, respected either, or right. most of the resolutions. But yeah, the General uh, Assembly is slowly also acquiring this new role, I feel, Ray. Um, I don't know if you remember last year, for example, after uh, Israel's invasion, there was a call by the General Assembly to discuss the Palestinian-Israeli issue there, Um and you had, I think you had over um, 80 people who uh, 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 who asked to speak at that meeting. Right. Uh, you had over 140 also participants, uh, nation participants in that General Assembly. And of course, they didn't come out with uh, anything, as you say, enforceable in terms of law, but it showed political leverage. It showed where the world is. It was a political victory, really, for the right. Palestinians. This year also something happened after the veto. We spoke of the veto earlier. Um, after uh, the veto was used by Russia uh, uh, the last time, there was this resolution at the General Assembly that says every time there's a veto at the Security Council, the General Assembly has to convene and each and every member has to explain what happened. And the country that uses the veto has, it's, you know, it's a little bit, maybe also it's not, uh, international law but right. at the same time it's uh it uh, it puts more spotlight on what's happening it makes the process a little more transparent that's at least what the president of the general assembly told us this is where we have to remember that the security council was created in in an era where right most countries were shackled by right rule and had no say in their own affairs or in global affairs and this is why Everyone is saying that the Security Council has to change to be more fit for purpose right. in the world we live in today. And listen, Ephraim, any final thoughts about what we should keep our eyes open for, a little summary of anything that we should be watching for? But there is also a lot of side events that are going to happen, and it will be interesting to watch what's happening on the sidelines, who is trying to meet with who. Uh, what are the bilateral meetings that are happening? There's also a very important forum by... Um, Saudi Arabia uh, on the 22nd, the MENA forum, where uh, we have ministers from uh, different parts of the Arab world coming to discuss all these issues we discussed today as well. We're keeping an eye on that. And uh, we'll be in the hallways. We'll be looking and watching and uh, all the movements, all the meetings, and uh, we'll right. be reporting to you. All right. My guest, Ifram Kosafi, the UN correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. Ephraim, it is always a pleasure to have you on our program. We love talking to you. You're a great guy. Great Thank reporter. You so much. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the Rayhan and Nia radio show. We'll be right back right after these messages. 
ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Ziad Brand, quality products from our family to yours. Ziad Brothers Importing offers the finest quality products, including brands like Sultan, Kraft, Nestle, Hook, Rico Picon, Donna, and many more. Ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best. For more information, visit our website at www.ziad.com. That's www.ziad.com. Ziad, quality products from our family to yours. Were you recently at the emergency room, urgent care, or at your doctor's office being told you need a hand, wrist, or elbow specialist? At the Katranji Hand Center, we offer the latest techniques in hand, wrist, and elbow care. From sports injuries to work injuries to everyday hand, wrist, and elbow problems, the specialists at Katranji Hand Center are here to get you back on track. Call us in Troy today at 248-869-4263 or visit us at katranjihandcenter.com to schedule your appointment today. Are you going to start a restaurant or grocery store soon? Do you need floor plans and designs? Call Naji Aboud at 734-744-9796. Do you want to buy kitchen and restaurant equipment at discount prices? Call Naji Aboud now, 734-744-9796. New concept products and design, the trademark of kitchen equipment. 5% discount on all purchases of $75,000 or more. New concept products and design. New location, 31185 Schoolcraft in Livonia. Learn more at www.newconceptproducts.com. Call Naji Aboud, 734-744-9796. And welcome back to the Ray Hanania radio show here at WNZK AM 690 Radio in Detroit and WDMV AM 700 radio in Washington, D.C. Um, we're broadcasting on the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News newspaper. I am Rayanania. Our next guest, very, very impressive, someone that's going to help us understand what's very important this week and next week, uh, the United Nations General Assembly 78th session, I believe, is taking place this week and next week. And we have the former Lebanon ambassador to the U.N., currently an international affairs analyst, Amal Ludalawi. Thank you. It's a pleasure so, to be with you. You have vast experience, but just before we even get into the issues, tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself, um, your service as the UN ambassador for Lebanon, and also um, how you got into politics. Actually, I was appointed uh, in 2017 as ambassador to the United Nations, but I started my, my uh, term uh, in January 2018. And I stayed till uh, the fall of 2022 uh, as uh, Lebanon's ambassador to the United Nations. Um, and my background, um, well, I was a journalist at the beginning of my career. Um, and I worked for a variety of uh, organizations, including the BBC and, and Nahar in Lebanon, Saudi papers. In 1998, uh, I was asked by Prime Minister, former Prime Minister, late Prime Minister, Rafiq Hariri, to go and work for him in Lebanon as uh, his uh, foreign policy advisor. 
uh, and uh, spokeswoman for the foreign uh, media. And that's how I entered politics. I, I went and uh, worked for him and uh, unfortunately he was assassinated and uh, I continued working for his uh, son, uh, Saad Hariri, who became a prime minister as well. And then he's the one who appointed me at the United Nations uh, as ambassador of Lebanon, permanent um, representative of Lebanon and the United Nations. When you got in there um, in 2018, um, what was the first thing you noticed about the UN process and the UN bureaucracy? Was it easy to work with? And my first impression was uh, dictated by my profession, former profession, uh, as a journalist. And my first impression was uh, how uh, communications in the UN does not capture the uh, enormity of the place and the responsibility of uh, what goes on there and what the world does inside that complex. Uh, it's an amazing uh, uh, place. Uh, I always call it Noah's Ark because you are so uh, there and doing amazing stuff at the time when divisions and disunity and hatred and everything out there. But 193 countries every single day when we step in that gate, you work together and we call each other brother and sister. Yeah, I mean, this is how literally how we uh, uh, greet each other. Good morning, brother, good morning, sister. Uh, so, and we work together in a beautiful way for myriad uh, issues. I mean, things people don't even think about that the United Nations engages in, especially in social issues and development and stuff like that. So my first impression was, and I always talk to the UN people about it, and I, I mentioned it many times, is communication, the UN, I thought is, is, is more a closed place than it should be. It should be more open and more transparent. And to tell you the truth, it got better in the last couple of years. Things are much better. Their communication strategy is better, whatever. But the UN is not really as good as it should be in telling the world what it really does. And, and that has a lot to do with the fact, correct, that this was something that was created in the 1940s, I believe, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. We're talking about now the year 2023. We're 78 years, and it really hasn't changed. We still have a General Assembly that passes resolutions um, that are basically uh, advisory. They're not inf really enforceable. And then we have a Security Council of people that were in power in the 40s who continue to run the UN, and only their resolutions, the Security Council resolutions, are the ones that are enforceable. That doesn't seem to be, a, it was a good process before. It doesn't seem to be a good process today. And do you think I'm right or wrong? Or how do you feel about that? I, I, I bet I, I'm going to disagree with you uh, that uh, it was not a good process because uh, if you look at the last 78 years, um, the world averted another uh, war, a third world war. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that all these big powers and small powers and all the countries in the world sit together there and, and work on trying to find solutions. And that's very important. It avoided a nuclear war. It, uh, it, it created a, a big, huge system of development, helping poor countries around the world everywhere. But you know, what you said is correct in the sense that you put your finger on the problem. The problem is that system that was created in 1947 after the post-World War II uh, has not been reformed. I mean, has been so static. There's, there's no change, no reform. Uh, because the big powers who are now, and they gave themselves more power by creating the Security Council and they have veto power, they are the ones who control whether there's any change or not. The, the big powers are the ones who can do it. But today, 
as we talk. It's really an interesting general assembly because it comes at the heels of heat of um, the BRICS meeting in uh, South Africa. It comes after the G20 meeting where the, the global South is rising. Their voice is rising. And there's a new uh, narrative now. And they're telling uh, the North, as people say, um, that things are not going to go uh, business as usual. We need reform. And this time, uh, our life depends on it because the international world order that we set up in 1947 and served the world beautifully and for the last uh, for the last 78 years and and uh, advanced economies and social issues and and prevented wars whatever but now it's not working because it has to be more equitable it has to be my represent the diversity that the world has changed because you know the the volume of the um, world economy and, and and the power is shifting it's, it, there's a shift in dynamics from the north to the south uh, there is a shift in uh, in, in uh, uh, the dynamics of uh, of power, not only the economic economic power, political power. So there is a, now there's a, people are contesting the order, and I think the message has been received and well uh, because the last, especially the last year and a half, two years with the Ukraine war, it really tested uh, the resilience and the strength of this order, and it exposed it because most of the attention and most of the money and most of the things from the global south point of view went to ukraine and at the time when the poverty the consequence of the pandemic uh, development the indebtedness i mean the biggest problem today in the world is the, indebt the, the debt that all these poor countries are living under you know and they felt they're being abandoned you know uh, so by that uh, the united states i think now realize that things are not going well and for this uh, system to survive you really have to do something about it so we saw you know uh, part of the global economic and political part of this uh, order or the, the in the post-world war ii order it's coming to the defense of the order and saying with a new language that we need reform the especially the international economic and financial institutions they need to be reformed uh, the global south said poor country the developing countries say you know the imf and the world bank we don't have a voice there it's 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 dominated by these countries who have uh, the power and the money uh, so you you start hearing things before the g20 um, the national security advisor mr sullivan gave a briefing and and he said something very very interesting he said we heard you loud and clear and we're going to make some changes and he, he's he's talking now about you know, reforming IMF, the World Bank, and he talked about the $50 billion that the president took with him to G20, hoping that the allies of the United States will put 150 to help poor countries and developing countries. Uh, the uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, Treasury, uh, not Treasury Secretary, I think he's the deputy, uh, he spoke uh, last week, uh, he talked about restructuring and reforming the IMF and the World Bank, and this is a new, la new language. Uh, and he's uh, proposing to have, to in, in, uh, in, uh, install a new, uh, fifth deputy director for the IMF. They have four directors controlled by the United States, Japan, China, and one for the developing countries. And now they're going to add the fifth one. I don't know what you know. The global South will find this uh, enough, or you know, we haven't heard back. I haven't heard back. But but they're trying. They're trying to salvage the system because the way things are going is not is not uh, viable anymore. And this today and tomorrow, actually, at the United Nations, 
these two visions are going to face off each other. And they're going to face, face each other in a very symbolic way by today. And today, I think the, uh, the SDG summit, you know, the SDGs, the, the sustainable development goals, uh, goals are not often on track. I mean, these are the, the goals that are going to help poor countries, developing countries on poverty and education and health. Like 12% of them only are, are you know, are on, on, on track. So, uh, and then you're going to, to see at the same time, uh, President Zelensky is there. And, and for the South, Ukraine war really created a problem for them in the sense that, you know, all the resources are going to stop the international economy and things like that. And they see, and that's the, the it's been interesting to watch, you know, the speeches what people are going to say but people are saying that um in the global south uh, they supported ukraine on principle especially on you know that you know you cannot violate the charter you cannot invade other countries you cannot do this but at the same time they wanted to see a solution they want to see a peaceful right. solution for the last year and a half you really did not see any serious right. attempt at a peaceful solution so there, there's a frustration I'm very encouraged by the change in the rhetoric, the language, the lexicon, you know, under Orientalism 50, 60 years ago, we would refer to the civilized world and the uncivilized world. Then we thought we were being nice by saying the developed world and the undeveloped world. Now we refer to it as the global north and the global south. And I think that is a much more respectful way to do it. They have this new alliance that's being formed. Shouldn't they also be as responsible in terms of putting up money? Uh, just like the G20 nations, their opposite uh, group um, in terms of helping the poor, isn't the responsibility now that this, these two different groups should be equal in terms of the amount of money, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely, because um, now, especially with the addition of six more countries, they're going to have more money and more power than even you know, the G20. So, but uh, the, the problem is, and this is how it's seen from here and from the West, that the BRICS, um, their main uh, goal or their main objective is to contest the international order and the United States domination of the order. They, 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 because China sees that, right. uh, you know, it has more power now and that in the UN system, it's increasing its power and it's increasing its influence, but it still finds the system not what it wants. And, and they're trying very hard to to, uh, this is what you hear everywhere here that they're trying to change the existing order, you know, to realign so, it. Exactly. So if, if the BRICS only objective is to change the order, it means it's like international competition in the United States only. Uh, this is not going to be good for anybody, right? You know, but if they are doing it because they really want to reform the system and they want to have a better way of diversified way of do, doing business with everybody, I think that would be good. And then you know, maybe you can see, hopefully you can see uh, a, a constructive role that they would play in, in you know, the international economy and this. But it's really not good for the world if it's seen or it's perceived as only a competition between the United States and China and, and, and the world is being divided now into groups. And uh, if you weaken the United Nations and if you weaken the same institution that you put there, to bring, to bring peace and security and economic prosperity and stuff like that and the world to work together and you go and work outside it, this is very dangerous. And this also, uh, you know, is not good for uh, world uh, peace. I've heard that uh, many people say that all these big alliances that are being formed actually do 
uh, undermine the influence of the United Nations because the United Nations is supposed to be the big alliance of all the nations, 193 members. Um, but one of the problems, I think, is, again, is, as we both, I think, agree, it was great when it was founded in the 1940s, but it hasn't grown with the growth of the members. How do you change the system so that members of the General Assembly have an influence over members of the Security Council where they actually are intertwined so one voice comes out of that rather than it always coming out of one side and leaving the other side to just have really, I, I hate to say empty resolutions because the moral implications of these resolutions are enormous, uh, but they have no legal weight the same way that the uh, Security Council does. How do we change it? Has there been a movement to create a balance, to bring one down, to raise the other one up? This is how the founders wanted it. When the US and the powers who came, the, the five, three at that time, and then five powers put it together. This is how they wanted the uh, United Nations to be <clears throat> to be uh, set up because they wanted to be a compromise between, you know, power politics and balance of power and that they are the winners, the victors of the war. So they want to have power and they want to preserve it in an institution. And the idealism of President Wilson, you know, the freedoms and self-determination and stuff like that and sovereignty. So the balance between these two, they made the balance between these two to have a security council that has the power, the teeth, uh, and the balance of power, uh, you know, uh, crust. And then they balanced it with a general assembly that is a debating society, basically. It has no right. power, uh, even economic power. It has a little bit of economic power, but again, then they took it away from it. So the general assembly is built like that because they didn't want to give power to the smaller states, to everybody else who they perceive that these are depend on us anyway <clears throat> for their security. So we decide for them. And they insisted on the veto. The US insisted on the veto power. The Russians insisted on the veto power. At that time, the Soviets. So everybody wanted to preserve their power. So they want, they're the big guys. So they, right. you know, this is our club and then we do it. Anyway, over the years, <clears throat> over the years, it has been like that. But now there is a new movement also um, in, in the United Nations. Uh, in this in the general assembly to challenge the veto, you know, because the veto is preventing the Security Council from uh, any decisions that are very important and central to peace and security, especially when you need it, when you have a war, like the war in Ukraine. Uh, the Security right. Council has been gridlocked and there's no no resolution on, on the Ukraine or in, the, in, in that sense. So the, there was an initiative by... <clears throat> The ambassador of Liechtenstein to um, uh, to have uh, the any member of the general assembly uh, of the Security Council who uses a veto power on any resolution to come to force to come to the, the general assembly and, and explain themselves why did they do it so basically questioning them and we voted on it I sponsored it for him and I we voted it and everything and it happened so far twice but the problem is. This could also, according to some ambassador, the Security Council, this all could also have a negative effect because if somebody knows that they're going to go to the, to the General Assembly anyway, so they will use the veto anyway. Um, it basically would encourage uh, more vetoes then under yes, that process. Yes. What about the yeah. idea of saying that if you issue a veto, you need to get a super majority of the General mm -hmm. Assembly to uh, approve that veto? 
In other words, you bring the veto to the General Assembly and say 70 percent of the members must agree to that veto for that veto to stand. That would be an enormous influence and power but, that the General Assembly would have. But, you know, all of these proposals need a change of the uh, uh, amendment of the charter. And you can never open the charter now. Can you imagine opening the charter now? There's no way there will be any consensus on anything if, if you open the charter. So it's going to be very difficult. But there's another um, side to this also, a reform, which is the uh, the um, the push for reforming the Security Council itself in the sense that you have to enlarge it. You have to have more representative of the world today because, you know, you have countries right. like, uh, you know, and India or Brazil, they will say they are more powerful than France or uh, or UK. And so why right. are they still there and not theirs? So they say that is this order and the Security Council represents an order, world order that was uh, that existed in 1945. The world is completely different now, and it's right. ridiculous that it will remain. Yeah. So there, there are many, many uh, proposals, and different regional groups have different proposals, and you know, uh, United for Consensus, and uh, the African Union, the Arab group, every group, the Latin American group, everybody is asking for more votes. Uh, the superpowers are not very crazy about the idea of right, the Security Council not. because right. because because you know it it also can they cancel each other like it's not in the interest of China to have Japan there they don't want it there uh, right. it's not in the interest of uh, of uh, China to have India there every country has uh, objection to, to its its competitor to be part of the uh, of the Security Council so so it was stuck. Now, last year, there was a change. The change is the American position. The Americans uh, changed their position, and President Biden, in his speech in the General Assembly, and we'll see tomorrow what he's going to say, he proposed, you know, enlargement of, he supported enlargement of the Security Council. The United States is keen to give Africa two seats, or seat or seat. But the problem is, apparently, all the P5, as Yanni, as far as they are concerned, they would accept it enlarging the, the council, but with no veto power. <laughs> so, and there are other proposals to have right. more non-permanent powers. So Isn't they want to preserve their power. <laughs> so that's so where it, we are it, now. <laughs> it sounds like there are a lot of great ideas that have been proposed, that are being discussed, mm -hmm. that a lot of things on the table, but the UN doesn't really have a process, does it, to make change easily? It sounds like changing the UN Charter is so difficult that yes, it would really right. rely on the Security Council to change that charter. And you're basically asking them to dilute their own power, which is inconsistent Absolutely. with what people would expect. Uh, it's What do we do? How do we do it? Is that why we've seen the world divide up into these different economic and political groups because the UN isn't changing. They're changing outside of the UN. You know, as you're, you're absolutely right. As long as these uh, countries, why we call them the global south, whatever, but the rest of the world, not the Security Council and the powers, see that they have no stake at, at the UN and they see there's no movement to be inclusive and, and represent, be representative of the world as it is today. You're going to see a very uh, divided, uh, you know, world order. You are going to have different splintering of different groups, people shopping for different alliances and things like that, because the central forum for bringing them together to work together is being weakened if right. it's not reformed. 
I hope, I'm really hoping that they will be serious. And there is a, a process at the United Nations for reforming Security Council, it's called IGN. And, and this has been there for 25 years, but it doesn't move. They don't even accept to, to negotiate on a text. <laughs> in the text, wow. they, don't, they just they, they want it to be less at the debating society. You just go and say your opinion. But I think hopefully this year, from what they saw, everybody realizes this is cannot this cannot uh, be sustained. You have to really put forward very uh, serious proposals and go and vote them, whether in the general assembly, the security council, and try to have some change. Otherwise, we are really hurting the United Nations. We are hurting the institution that you know, saved the world for 78 years. And it could save it more if we know how to reform it, how to make it better, how to make it more relevant to the world of today. You know, and that's and the, representative. And, representative. and representative. And, yes. and equitable, and equitable, because you don't want to people in, in, at the UN, when the charter tells you, you have sovereign equality, that China for one billion people and Slovenia with less than one million or one million, have the same seat at the Security Council and they have the same, not weighted, but same voice, you know? So it's very important that reform happens. It's very important that we save the United Nations as a strong institution. It's important the leaders who are in New York today, although like four of the B5 leaders are not show up, uh, the, that they- Which they is a terrible implement. sign, by the way, that the yes, it's not a leaders of four of the big nations are not even going to be there. Uh, 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 my guest is Amal Mughalali. Uh, your insight is so important. Um, and I think it's going to get people thinking much clearer about what needs to be done, but also giving us a little more concern because the movement that we think is happening toward change and better representation seems like it's a little bit stalled. But I do want to thank you for joining us on the radio and talking to us. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Arabnews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at Arabnews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. Arabnews.com, news that matters to you. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. Life for Relief and Development has now been rated as one of the best charities for humanitarian aid. Life's humanitarian projects span the globe, and Life is celebrating its 30th anniversary of providing essential life-saving aid to people and communities in 36 countries, regardless of race, color, religion, or cultural background. 
Where there is life, there is hope. And when disaster occurs here or around the world, including being one of the first responders to the Turkey-Syria earthquake crisis, Life for Relief and Development rushes in to provide food, medical aid, and shelter to those in need. We are looking to help the earthquake victims, and we take 0% overhead on emergency donations. So please help improve these efforts. Learn more about our involvement to help the helpless and bring hope where it's needed most. And make your tax-deductible donation to Life for Relief and Development now at lifeusa.org or call 248-424-7493. That's 248-424-7493. When you're looking for the best in optical care, Dr. Imad Nakash is your doctor to see. With years of experience and thousands of successful procedures performed, you can trust your eyes to Dr. Imad Nakash. See Dr. Imad Nakash and his professional staff for your eye care needs. There's two locations to serve you. In Hazel Park, call 248-336-3937. 248-336-3937. In Rochester Hills, call 248-299-3937. That's 248-299-3937. You've been listening to the Ray Hanania Radio Show Season 3, Episode 21, on September 20th, 2023. We're broadcast on the U.S. Arab Radio Network on WNZK AM 690 Radio in Detroit and on WDMV AM 700 Radio in Washington, D.C. Sponsored by Arab News, the voice of a changing region at ArabNews.com. You can listen to a podcast of this radio show and past shows by visiting ArabNews.com slash Ray Radio Show. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to speaking with you again as we address the many issues facing Arab Americans, the Middle East, right here from the United States. Bye-bye, everybody. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you.